I've entitled this message on verses 18 to 29, A Final Incentive. Now, being a good old-fashioned Baptist, you know that's not my only title. That's just the short version. A Final Incentive. If I had to sum up this whole passage, it would be this title. A Final Incentive to Hear God When He Speaks in Covenant Worship as rooted in the superiority of the new covenant. What we have here is a final incentive, a final urging, a final set of reasons why we ought to listen to God when in corporate covenantal worship he speaks in the scriptures. And the reason is because of the superiority of the covenant that we're under. So by way of introduction, these verses are the climax of the sermon that is the book of Hebrews. In these few verses, all the threads of teaching woven throughout the book are tied together. The major doctrines are all here. The importance of hearing God when he speaks. The superiority of Jesus Christ and the better new covenant he has established and then the consequent call for believers to endure until they reach this God through Christ in heaven. Now these verses don't accomplish this by merely restating in doctrinal form the truths previously taught. In other words, the preacher doesn't go back now as he's summing up and quote, you know, he takes a, a, a verse from from Hebrews 1 and another one from Hebrews 3, and then he takes this little piece from, and, and put it back together and just kind of shorten it up, and that's not what he does. Instead, he paints for us two pictures. These are found in verses 18 to 24. That's what we'll spend our time on this morning. Both pictures, perhaps to your surprise, are of mountains. Mountains. And each mountain is described with seven phrases. The two mountains are compared and they are contrasted. And then what will happen, Lord willing, we'll see next week in verses 25 to 29, exhortations are given on the basis of the superiority of the second mountain over the first mountain. So this morning, I hope to explain what these mountains are, what they stand for, and then lessons. From the passage, all right? Yes, we're done with our catechizing, but you didn't think I was going to stop asking you questions in the teaching of the Word of God, right? Well, we're going we're gonna to go over four questions today. So let's begin by um, examining this really rather striking portion of Scripture, which is rich and deep. Um, here are the questions. First, what are the two mountains? What are these two mountains? Now, before I identify them, I want to show you the structure of verses 18 to 24. Many of you have already seen it. You've grasped it. But if you haven't, um, I want to show you that to show we are indeed talking about two mountains. The, the two pictures, the two images, are set off from each other by the use of the phrase coming to. Right? Verse 18, for you have not come to this, verse 22, but you have come to 
this place. You haven't gone there, you have gone there. Now we'll explain in just a minute the importance of the words coming to, because they're actually rather special. But now, simply notice that the first picture is introduced in verse 18 by the words, you haven't gone there. And then a description is given. And then the second picture is introduced with the words, but you have come here. And then a description of this second location is given. Now, I think most of you perhaps recognized, as I read verses 18 to 21, that the mountain being described is Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is the first mountain. We know this because the descriptions of this mountain are all taken from Exodus 19 and Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 4 and a few places, all of which are describing the same location, what is sometimes in the Old Testament called Mount Horeb and other times called Mount Sinai. But it's the same mountain or the same mountain complex. In Exodus 19, Israel is stopped by God near Mount Sinai. And then God says to Moses, tell all the people to leave the camp and after three days of holy preparation, have them come to the base of the mountain. Now make sure they don't touch the mountain. Make sure you basically rope it off and don't let anybody get near. Don't even let animals get near because this is holy. I'm coming in my special presence to meet with you and I will consume them if they touch the mountain. So you come right to the base of the mountain to meet me, but you stop there. That's what he, that's what he taught them back there. Well, what's happening at Sinai here? What God is doing is he is taking what was the family of Abraham that's now gotten huge, and he threw an additional covenant to the Abrahamic covenant, what we usually call the Mosaic covenant, He's going to make that covenant with them and make them into a nation. They're no longer going to be only a family. They're now going to be a nation to God through covenant. And he's also calling them there in that covenant for him to be their God, them to be his people, and to worship him. That's part of why later when they don't worship him but worship Baal at the foot of the mountain, it's such a grotesquely evil sin. That's not what they were called there to do. So they come to the foot of this mountain. And God calls them to make covenant and to worship. And this is the mountain that they, they came to. Now... Our text tells us we didn't come, we haven't come to that mountain, but they did. The Old Testament Israelites did come to this mountain. And that's what the comparison, that's the basis of this comparison. And even though the name Sinai isn't overtly stated here, it's clear that is the mountain. And in verse 20, the word mountain is used to describe this place. Now in the second section, verses 22 to 24, Mount Zion is pictured. So this is Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. That's clearly stated right at the beginning of verse 22. Now, this is 
a mountain that can't be touched. It's the heavenly home of God. It's a mountain. It's a real mountain, but it's not one you can travel to on the earth. It's one you have to travel to by faith. And in or on this mountain, there is a very interesting assortment of beings who gather for covenant worship and to hear God speak. Do you see the parallels in part between the two mountains? Perhaps you can already begin to imagine some of the things that these two mountains have in common and some of the ways in which they are dissimilar. And as we look at the detailed descriptions, and we'll do that very quickly, we'll then be able to enumerate the similarities and the differences. All right? So the preacher is setting before our eyes what we might sum up as two mountainous and covenantal worship centers. He's comparing two mountainous and covenantal worship centers. Now, why does he use the motif of a mountain? That might strike us as very odd. I mean, why doesn't he talk about temple? Or why doesn't he talk about tabernacle like he's talked all the way through the book? Well, you didn't know it, but he actually has been talking about mountain. Because ordinarily in the Old Testament, temples and meeting God and the places of worship and covenant making, they're mountains. Let me show you that very quickly. Again, this is part of the richness of this passage that you can go home and study for days just on, just on this little paragraph we're going we're gonna to talk about quickly. Mountains are frequently in the Bible, places where God reveals himself in a special way and receives worship back. For example, in Ezekiel 28, the Garden of Eden is described as a tabernacle a place of worship, and it is called the Holy Mountain of God. Did you know that in those first couple of chapters, Eden is not on a flat plain? It's a mountain garden. How do you think the four rivers could flow from it? Water flows downhill. It's got to be hilly or a mountain. It's got to be something like that, or it doesn't make any sense. And later revelation, later, later Bible tells us, yeah, that's a mountain. That's a temple of worship on a mountain. That's how it's described in Ezekiel. Or think about um, Melchizedek. Genesis 14. He's the priest of what? God most high. He leads worship. Where does he do it? In Salem. What's that? The mountain that today we call Jerusalem. It's the same place. It's a mountain. <laughs> Abraham met and worshipped God at Mount Moriah. Wow, what a bunch of coincidences. Nope. This is all planned by God. He's trying to make a point. Right? And we'll get to that later. We could go on and on. Moses encountered God in the burning bush and worshipped at the mountain called Sinai. This same mountain. It's just a, a few months or years before Israel comes back out and revisits it. On his way to Egypt, that's where he's at. He's at Mount Sinai. That's where God reveals himself in the burning bush. That's where he gives worship. He understands it's a holy place. Solomon's temple was built on the mountain of Jerusalem. 
Other examples could be given. And it wasn't only Israel, even the pagans of the day tended to have their temples or worship locations on hills or mountains. That's why all throughout the stories in the histories of, of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, and they worshiped in the high places. They worshiped in the high places. You don't read about them worshiping in the valleys. No, their gods were great and exalted, and they were up, and they were high, and they were... And so they would have their groves or their places of worship on the top of hills or on mountains. Why? Because their god was lifted up. Well, their gods were false, but they've got the right idea. It's a corruption of the truth from Israel. So even they uh, did it that way. But the worship places the true God ordained, and we've listed some of them, not all of them, but some of them, they were all pictures or types of the true worship place, the heavenly Mount Zion. It's not that Mount Zion in heaven is a reflection or shadow of these things, and it's named after them. Oh, that's backwards. As we've learned in Hebrews, the spiritual and the heavenly, that's the true temple. That's the true tabernacle. That's the true place of worship. That's the true mountain. That's the original mountain. These are the types and shadows of that, right? So it's a real mountain. Heaven's a created place. God made it. Heaven isn't God. It's a created place. So if we know the background to covenant making and worship and God's revelation of himself in the Old Testament, we shouldn't be surprised at all <laughs> that mountains are the image chosen by the preacher and by God to teach us lessons about drawing near to him and him to us, and him speaking to us as we engage in covenant worship. You see, mountains are the biblical place where you expect to meet God. Mountains are the biblical place that you should expect to meet God. And this is reinforced if we examine the meaning of the phrase coming to. It's not in Hebrews a generic word that simply means People got up and walked somewhere and they arrived at a location. It's not, it's not just as empty as that. In this book, come to is always and only used for coming into the presence of God to worship him. Again, go home, find the other uses. We don't have time to look at them, but they are. And remember, what's the Bible that the writer to the Hebrews is always quoting? He always and only quotes the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Well, if you go to the Septuagint, they always use this same word to come to, to mean to meet with God for the making of covenants or to come together in a solemn assembly to worship him. So even if we didn't know anything about mountains or anything else, if we knew that word, as soon as we read in verse 18, for you have not come to, oh, he's talking about worship. I don't know what, where it's going to be. I don't know how it's going to be done, but he's talking about worship. Same thing on verse 22, but you have come. Oh, whatever he's going to tell us, it's going to be about worship. It's going to be about meeting with God. Yes, yes. 
where Israel came to once, historically, and where New Covenant believers continually come to is a place of covenant worship. So what the preacher is comparing isn't just two physical mountains. They are two physical mountains. But that's not all they are. He's comparing old covenant worship and new covenant worship. He's comparing the old covenant and the new covenant. And in both cases, there's an assembly of the people and they come into the divine presence at a mountain to meet with God. That's what's going on here. So those are the similarities. Uh, here are some similarities. But there are some dissimilarities as well. Notice immediately again, the people he's writing to, he says, you didn't come to Sinai. You came to Zion. Christians for worship don't go to the Old Covenant and the new covenant. Oh, there are things in the old covenant that are ours and for us, and we, we have an entire Bible, not a portion of the Bible. Amen. But we are not under the regulations of the old covenant for worship. We have not come to Sinai. That is not where we go to find out how to worship God since Jesus has come and inaugurated the new covenant, the new way of worship. All right? So there's some dissimilarities here. We haven't gone to worship at Sinai. We worship at Mount Zion. I want to expound that to a small degree by simply answering the questions of, you know, what does that mean? <laughs> Do these mountains stand for anything else? Well, if we see how each one is portrayed by looking at the seven and seven uh, descriptors, We'll answer these questions and then we can make application to ourselves and we'll be done. So, uh, more quickly, secondly, the second question, how is Mount Sinai portrayed? In seven phrases. First, as a physical place. Verse 18, it can be touched. This is not a, a vision. This is not a interesting theoretical description. No, Israel actually came to a physical mountain called Sinai, it could be touched. If they touched it, they died. But it was a real mountain, it could be touched. It was physical, it's part of the creation. All right, earthly creation. Secondly, and this is really, um, of the seven, this is uh, two through six. It's, a, it's not only a physical place, it's a frightening place where God is present, but he is obscured. I mean, God comes down, yes, he draws near, but he shows himself in blazing fire and in darkness at the same time and gloom and a tempest or a whirlwind. God was there and yet there was no openness, no transparency. And finally, Mount Sinai is portrayed here not only as a physical place and a frightening place, an obscure vision of God, but it's a place where sound overwhelmed the hearers. There was a trumpet blasting. Surely that was alarming to them. That, that was a war cry. 
But then there was a sound that caused them even more fear. It was the voice of God. Now, was this the angels that we read about in other portions of Scripture that we know were there? Are they the ones who transmitted it to uh, Moses? Or, as Stephen says, is it the angel of the Lord? Is it the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ who's doing this speaking here? Well, this, and I'm not aware of any other place in Scripture that tells us, but whoever's voice this is, whether it's simply a production of, of God or whether it's angels or whether it's the Son of God, whoever it is, the sound of it and the message terrified the people. That's, it, they, it terrified them. They could not endure God's speech. Now, just stop for a minute. Here's a place I can't, I can't spend any time on. But remember that word? We've been talking about that word endure a lot, haven't we? Same word, same chapter. Go home and think about, they could not endure God's speech. How does Hebrews open? God has spoken in these last days through his son, hear him. And over and over again, and we'll look at some of these in a minute, we hear God speaking, God speaking. That's how we know what to believe and, and how to have faith and where to place it. And, and if you can't endure God speaking, you will perish. Moses could hear. God gave him grace to. Aaron could hear. Almost no one else could hear. That explains why. And, and Joshua, he heard. He was up there. That's why, this explains why almost all of the Israelites perished in the wilderness. They could not endure God's voice. They only found terror in his presence, nothing else. Just being afraid of your sins, or sick of their results, or terrified, doesn't make you a Christian. Those may be very appropriate, but you must endure God's speaking. They begged not to have to listen any longer. Even Moses trembled with fear, although he listened. So what is Mount Sinai? On the one hand, it is a holy place of privilege. God is making covenant with them, and he demands worship from his people. But these verses make it very clear that all of this was unbearable to the people. God is here, but he's obscured. He's, he's shrouded in darkness. There's no clear vision of God by the people. There is for Moses, but, but not the people. The sounds don't produce any comfort. They only produce dread. Right? So that's the first mountain. That's how it's portrayed. How is Mount Zion portrayed, this second mountain? Well, first of all, as a physical place. Both mountains are real, literal, created locations. But this mountain can't be touched because it's a, a city in heaven on a mountain. And there are multiple pictures to try to describe the richness of what heaven is. I'm sure we will still be surprised when we get there. Notice the threefold description of Mount Zion. It's, uh, we have come to Mount Zion, even to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, he's talked about this multiple times earlier in the book. So we know what Mount Zion is. He's not talking about physical Jerusalem. He's not talking about the temple, the Israelites' temple. He's talking about heaven. Hebrews 7, Hebrews chapter 10, 19, others, other places. Yes, it's named after the place of worship in Jerusalem, or really the reverse. So it's character, 
It's a place of covenant making. It's a place where God meets with his people. It's a place where God speaks. It's a holy place. All right. So this is the place where earlier we have been taught that Christians enter. Remember it says, oh, we, when we worship, we enter the holy of holies. And we're all thinking, wait, there's no temple. Yes, there is. There's a temple on a mountain in heaven. And we worship there. Whenever we worship God rightly, when we're assembled as the people of God, that's where we worship. Amen. We are there right now. And you can see it if you have eyes of faith. Amen. How else is Mount Zion portrayed? Secondly, as a place where angels throng the throne of God with glad worship. An innumerable host of angels are in what it calls festal gathering. You know, angels do a lot of things. They war with the devil. They fight demons. They protect the saints. They do all kinds of other duties, anything that God commands them. But here they're pictured as gathering for joyful religious worship. <laughs> so that's the kind of place this is as well. Thirdly, it's a place where God's elect are gathered. They're described as the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Meaning, here is everyone that God has chosen for salvation and who wrote their names in permanent ink in the book of life. Amen. This is, in other words, the entire church of God. And notice Jesus is here, and we know from chapter 2 that he is leading us in worship. And who else is here? Well, we know from chapter 11, everyone who's finished the race, everyone endured from the end. Remember, they're sitting in the stands at the end of the race. Where are the stands? The stands are on the mountain of heaven. It's the same place, different picture. So this is... Oh, and let us not forget, we are there too. We're part of the elect. We're part of the people of God. According to verse 22, we have come to this place. Not someday after we die, we're going to that place. Yeah, that's true. But this says, present tense, we have come to this place. Verse 25, we obviously experience this heavenly worship because he says, see that you do not refuse him who is, present tense, speaking. We don't have to wait to get to heaven to hear God speak. He speaks through his word every time God's people are gathered to worship him. This is what worship in spirit and truth is. We could spend a lot of time on this. We need to keep moving. But this phrase shows that there is one vast assembly in heaven and on earth united in the happy and triumphant worship of God. This is the foretaste of the eternal observance of the Sabbath that was noted in chapter 4, verse 9. That eternal worship that we so long for, where we'll be perfected, we'll never grow tired, we'll never think, you know, that tune's not very good, and my mind's wandering over there, and all that'll be done away with, and we will perfectly Sabbath rest in worship forever. Amen. <sighs> Glory. We're experiencing that. If you have faith, you're experiencing that right now, in part, 
fourth uh, description of the heavenly Zion of Mount Zion. It's a place where all the judge, where the judge of all the earth is. Now, in most of your Bibles, it, it translates this phrase, and to God, the judge of all. And that, that's right. I mean, that's, that's correct. But in the Greek, it's much more emphatic. It's, and to the judge, the God of all. You say, well, well I was in a good mood. And I was getting pretty happy about the angels and being up there and Jesus leading me and singing from chapter 2, verse 7. And, I, I was getting, and now God's there as the judge. Yep, he's there as the judge. He's the creator of all men. And he's laid on them the law to love him in worship and love other human beings. And he always is and must be a judge. But here, this is a happy judge. This is a satisfied judge. The judgment's been made. The judgment's done. Why do we know that? Because of the next couple of phrases. Because with the judge are the spirits of the righteous made perfect. People have come before him and because of faith in Jesus Christ, have been declared righteous and then made their souls, their, their spirits, been made perfectly righteous. Amen. The judge approved of that. The judge said, not guilty, enter in. This is a satisfied judge. Why else is he a satisfied judge? Because Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, is there. He instituted by his death, by the shedding of his blood, a new covenant that superseded the Mosaic, the Davidic, the Abrahamic, every other covenant. All of them pointed to his and was connected to his, but he fulfilled all of those things. And his sacrifice and his sacrifice alone paid the price of sins. So he's the mediator of a new, a better, a perfect covenant. And then finally notice the last thing that's in this mountain, heavenly mountainly uh, worship center. It's, um, it's talking blood. There's blood that preaches up there. Now th this is a picture, right? I mean, all of these are pictures. This is an image. Um, Jesus' blood, as unique and special as it is, doesn't have a mouth and lips and a larynx, and it doesn't talk. This is a picturesque way of saying that the death of Jesus Christ is preached by him from heaven. Charles Wesley does a beautiful thing in that great hymn, right? Five bleeding wounds he bears, and they continually pour out what? Forgiveness and prayer, and they preach. That's what they do. That's what's happening here. Jesus is enthroned. He's risen from the dead. He's in session, as the church has historically said. And what's he doing? He's doing, he's doing multiple things, but one of the things he's doing is by his very presence there, his blood is preaching. His blood, for forgiveness for sins, is proclaimed. How is that happening? It's happening right now as I read these verses and say it as a man of God. Jesus is speaking. If you had to come listen to me for my sake, don't bother coming. I'm not the preacher here. 
when the Word of God is rightly read and correctly preached, Jesus, His blood, is preaching. And again, we don't have time to do this. We've tried to point it out through the book of Hebrews. But you can find in Hebrews from the very first verse all the way to the end, you can find occasion after occasion where all three persons of the Trinity are, are said to be speaking to the people of God when they gather for worship. In these last days, God is speaking through His Son, Jesus Christ. God the Father is speaking. God the Son is speaking. We came to chapter 10, and the Holy Spirit is saying. It's not the Holy Spirit said back when these Old Testament verses that you know, he inspired back then when he got done with that, and now he's not speaking. He was speaking then, and he speaks now, and every time God's people gather, and they arrive by faith in the heavenly Zion as we are now, God the Father tells his Son to speak, and through the Holy Spirit... God speaks. Again, f find the parallel. This is, a, this is a little icon on the computer screen. And that little icon, just a little picture, a couple of pixels, it stands for pages of truth. Right? Well, you, you can't click on pages of truth. If you want to go somewhere, you need to just, you just poke that little thing. And, and that's what's going on here. That's what this sprinkled blood it speaks a better word. You know, Abel's blood cried out a good word. Justice. 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 Jesus' blood cries out a better word. Justice is fulfilled. Sins are forgiven. Salvation is possible. In fact, it's secured. So heaven is the place where Jesus preaches, where he engages in worship. Notice that both descriptive lists end with God speaking. Mount Sinai, the last thing, the capstone is God spoke. And here, it's God is speaking. And this is what is most important in meeting God in worship. You must hear God when the scriptures are read and taught. This is how God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, this is how they speak, present tense, to their people. Clearly, Mount Zion's worship has a different feel than Mount Sinai's, yes? There's still sobriety here, of course. God is still a judge. But there's also joy and singing and perfection and forgiveness and a satisfied judge. There's the gospel here. And these things, therefore, should all characterize our worship. Do you understand that when we come together to worship, we're not worshiping alone and we're not creating our own worship? What we do when we assemble for worship and we ask God to be present among us, when he answers us, here's what he does. By faith, he pulls back the veil of heaven and we see 
this true description. And we're joining the worship of God. It's already ongoing. They're not waiting for us. They don't need us. Oh, they really sound good. They have a nice choir. Oh, he's a good preacher. Uh, she's dressed nicely. None of that matters at all. That's completely useless. Nothing compared to the glories of the worship of Mount Zion. We, we should. Our only problem is we should wonder how is it that God would actually roll that back and let us see this, know this, and be a part of it. Like how? How is that even possible? I'm not worthy of that. I mean, all these people are perfected. I'm not. That's why Jesus is on the throne. That's why he gives us the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit helps us worship in spirit and in truth. And as that imperfect but genuine worship goes up, Jesus cleanses all the sins and inefficiencies out of it. And God is truly worshiped and praised. And we really hear him speak. Final question. What's the meaning of this comparison and contrast? Well, both mountains, God's people meet with him. In both places, there is covenant making or covenant renewal. In both places, there, is, there are acts of worship, which includes the central act of listening, of God's people hearing God speak. But these two mountains also represent two covenants. Mount Sinai represents the old covenant. Mount Zion, the heavenly, the new covenant. Remember, the old covenant was imperfect. It's why a new was needed. The preachers already taught us that. The new covenant is perfect and it's unbreakable. The old mountain was a temporary mountain for worship. The new mountain is eternal. We do not come to Mount Sinai. We don't come to both mountains. For worship, we take our instruction from the new, better mediator, Jesus. This is a distinction between law and gospel. I'm not saying there's no gospel in the Old Testament. I'm not saying there's no law in the New Testament. I'm saying, though, that the, the preponderance, the weight, the feel of worship in the Old Testament I mean, what was Sinai all about? It's about giving the law. What's Jesus' covenant about? It's all about grace. It's all about gospel. It's all about forgiveness. Now, you need both. You need an understanding of both. But the covenants are characterized those ways. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Right? In both mountains, there is trembling. But in our mountain, there's trembling with joy. That mountain has dread. Our mountain has encouragement. The vision of God there was obscure, remote. It was a partially closed meeting. What do we have? We have a clear, near, open meeting with God. We have begun to see God according to chapter 10. That's amazing. Theirs was a one-time meeting with God. 
Ours is every time we assemble, especially on the Lord's days. And all of this points us once again to the immense blessings that come with the new covenant, with this new arrangement. And those who worship like this, at this place, under this best of covenants, are a privileged people. I hope what you go away with today fundamentally is just the immense number of blessings that God's given you, that you are sitting here, that you are here. I don't get mad anymore at men in my neighborhood mowing their lawns at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. I just feel sorry for them. They have no idea what they're missing. Heaven opens. Jesus speaks. Peace and grace comes to us. Yeah, but I got a nice lawn. <laughs> really? This is an incomparable privilege. This, brothers and sisters, is what we were made for. Your highest goal, your highest work, as we men reminded each other yesterday in our study of Psalm 27, it's to worship God. Our greatest joys, our greatest strength, our salvation, it's all wrapped up in the worship of God. Are there other things we're called as Christians to do? Absolutely. But preeminently, it's worship God. Psalm 27, 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord. That is what I will seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. That's a specialized word that means ask for a word from God. We're getting all of that to a much greater and plainer degree than David could ever hope for in his day when he wrote those words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So, five uses and we'll be done. First, I hope all of you now are convinced that New Covenant worship doesn't actually happen here as much as it happens at a mountain. And we happen to be here, you know, in relation to the mountain. New Covenant worship happens in a mountain. God is high and lifted up. And we join in by looking up. When we assemble as the church of God to worship him, heaven is open to us. No, it's not a place yet that can be seen or touched. One day it will be. We must use the eyes of faith. But remember what Hebrews 11.1 1 says. Faith can take things that are real but un- invisible and make them known and present. The reality, faith makes things such a reality that we live in accordance with these unseen things. In other words, faith worships. Simple question to you. Do do you believe this? (laughs) Will this affect your thinking about worship? Two, be reminded from here that God is specially present in worship. Again, do you believe that? Do you expect his presence when you come here? Do you pray for that during the week? Do you hope for that when you walk through the door? Now, people say, well, God's, God's present everywhere. He's omnipresent, right, Pastor? Yes, yes, he is. But what we mean by special presence 
it, it's maybe it's not a very good phrase, but it's the historical church phrase, so we use it. It means that while God is everywhere, he decides from time to time to choose to reveal himself in special saving ways. So his special presence is always of grace and of blessing. So when we say God is with us, yeah, he's with me all week. Not like right now. Not like right now. Heaven's open. God is present with his people and he's here not for the purpose of destruction. The judge is satisfied. He's here to give you blessing and grace and courage and strength and everything you need to finish the race to heaven. This is why the blessing at the end of the service, it's not just, it's not mere words. It's not just, oh, uh, now we know to stop. Uh, oh yeah, say amen and now I can leave. No, God is reminding you that why you're here is for him to bless you and he places his name on you. That's what the blessing is. And he blesses you. It's not like, well, you know, he's, the words were last week and I didn't feel very blessed last week. You were blessed by God last week if you're a believer. If you took that in faith, you were blessed. You're not stronger than God. Your unbelief isn't stronger than God. Third use. The central act in worship is God speaking. The Father speaks, the Son speaks, the Holy Spirit speaks. God speaks. We've rehearsed some of these verses already. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. God in these last days. In other words, God in the days of Mount Zion. Not in the days of Mount Sinai. In the days of gospel, not law. Of new covenant, not old covenant. Has spoken by his Son. So, for those of you who worry about, we're kind of small, or we don't sing well, or I don't sing well, or you're off key, or, man, we got a lot of people gone today, the worship wasn't very good, you know, a lot of, a lot of people on vacation and sick, and, but it's not, it's not first and fundamentally about you talking. It's fundamentally about you listening to God talk, and then you respond back to Him. This is why we begin our worship with God speaking to us, right? And then we respond, and then he speaks, he speaks to us perfectly. And we, we do okay, perhaps. We do whatever, and Christ purifies it, and, and on we go. That's what worship is. It's that holy dialogue between God and his congregation. Fourth and finally, See the great privilege to be the people of God in the new covenant era. We worship in heaven. Our worship is led by Jesus Christ from the throne. We worship in the true mountain, the true temple, the true tabernacle. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is constantly speaking to us through his 